Hello everybody, uh, I'm Kia Ora. Today we will talk uh, about Austro's research that underpins changes uh, made to key components of the guide to pavement technology. We have almost 400 people registered for today's session. Uh, welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Ostroads and I will be moderating today's session. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Infrastructure Program, which is managed by Rose Gapi. A little bit of housekeeping. Um, our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The report uh, and the slides today's presentation is based on can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. There's also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions for the Q&A at any stage during the webinar. If your question relates to any particular slide, please include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best as we can. If you have any technical problems, uh, please use that same questions box uh, to let us know. But just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session um, using your registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, uh, you can also find Ostroads in your podcast app. Um, so our presenters uh, for today are Dr. Michael uh, Moffat and Dr. Jeff Jamieson from the Australian Road Research Board. Uh, both presenters have a wealth of experience in the areas of uh, pavement material characterization, pavement design and performance. We will first hear from Michael, who will take us through uh, the technical basis of the changes made to part two of the guide. And after that, uh, Jeff will focus on part five. Uh, so welcome to our presenters and it is over to you, Michael. Thank you very much, Ekaterina. Thank you very much. Um, this project um, is born of a desire for Austroads members to have uh, an up-to-date document describing the technical basis of um, the parts two and five of the Austroads Guide to Pavement Technology. Part two deals with uh, pavement structural design and part five with uh, maintenance treatments and particularly of relevance to today um, for uh, design of structural overlays. Um, in the mid 1990s, um, Arm and others started to, to assist Austroads in collecting um, the background information to what then was the Austroads Pavement Design Guide. Um, in time, that transferred or transformed into part two of the of the the, the uh, pavement technology series. Uh, in time, that uh, technical background information was published in two two or three different editions. The most recent of which was released in two thousand and eight. And that document, which I show on the screen there. Um, references the background to all of part two up to and including the 2008 edition of part two. The project that we're going to talk about today um, has produced a separate standalone document that documents the changes that have occurred since 2008 up to the edition that was released in 2017. So if you want to get a complete picture of the technical basis of the 2017 edition of the guide, you need to have both the document that we're going to talk about today and the underlying one that was released in 2008. And a very similar structure exists for uh, part five, which my colleague Jeff Jamison is going to talk to um, later uh, today. So the project was um, set up, project was, um, set up under the um, auspices of, of Ross Guppy's um, Pavement Task Force team. 
project team was headed by James Allen from Transport for New South Wales. I led it from an ARB point of view with Jeff watching over my shoulder as um, part of ARB standard quality management process. The work was reviewed by the Austro's uh, Pavement Structures Technical Group, as I said, under the auspices of uh, the Pavement Task Force. Uh, and again, underneath uh, the Austro's board. The work was done fairly quickly. Jeff and I had been the principal editors of both um, of the most recent additions to the guide. So we readily had to hand a lot of the material necessary. A big, bit of a quick description of the technical group. It's made up for members of the Austro's uh, road agencies, uh, as well as industry representatives um, from Australia and New Zealand in APA and Oststab, and the Civil Contractors Association in New Zealand and the like. So each of those members had the opportunity to review the document, provide comments, make sure it met their needs. So I'm going to take you through part two, uh, pavement structural design, and Jeff will follow that up later with the, the structural design components of part five. Um, there's a fair bit to get through today, uh, so we're going to, to gloss over the over the, the surface of the topic. Uh, and of course, the, the really detailed information is available in the report because that's the aim of the report, is to document the technical basis um, of the changes to the guide since 2008. Um, from 2008, there was an edition produced in 2012 that had some minor changes. I won't be talking too much about these today. Um, we altered the equation for use in evaluating the mo mo modulus stress dependency for unbound granular materials. For those of you familiar with repeated load triaxial testing, what we essentially did was drop a plus one from the equation and revert the equation to Uzan's um, standard universal model. We changed the definition of modified granular materials, and you'll see coming up later we had yet another um, change in 2017. In design traffic, uh, we added in the um, load levels on single tired axle groups and at different tire widths, so considering some types of super singles. We added in some standard loads that were considered to cause the same damage as the standard axle, enabling you to do those um, standard axle repetition calculations to characterise design traffic. Uh, we removed the urban and rural traffic distributions that had been in the guide since 1987, I think, from recollection. Um, and we replaced that with uh, summary distribution data from two, uh, over 200 weigh-in-motion sites scattered around Australia. In the 2017 edition, we revisited those WIM sites and added in WIM sites um, from New Zealand as well. And, uh, and a minor detail for the uh, mechanistic design procedure, we allowed um, for separate sets of five sublayer um, groupings for characterisation of multiple types of selected subgrade materials. The changes into the 2017 edition were far more significant than the changes from 2008 to 2012. And I've listed on this slide here the majority of the Austroads research reports that went into uh, the basis, well, that are the basis for the changes in the 2017 edition. And you can see that there is a considerable large number of them. And to my mind, this whole exercise in part two and five represents translation of research into practice in the most meaningful way possible. Um, so there's a technical basis report to um, provide you input as to why changes were made. That technical basis report may yet or does refer onto these documents. To combine all of these into one single report will be many thousands of pages and probably a cure for the most chronic form of insomnia. Um, the changes made to the 2017 edition, we renamed the mechanistic design procedure for flexible pavements, the mechanistic empirical procedure, to reflect the fact that there is still an empirical component um, in that mechanistic procedure. And I will show you um, a classic example of that empirical component a little bit later. The most significant central change was the introduction of the axle strain method for designing bound materials in flexible pavements. And in this method, instead of determining uh, equivalent standard axles or standard axle repetitions for bound materials, we determine the fatigue performance of those materials under each individual axle type and load level in the design traffic spectrum. And these um, changes meant that we did no longer refer to SARS-5 um, 
for asphalt material or SARS-12 for cemented materials. And rather than retain SARS-7 all by itself for permanent deformation, we replace that with equivalent standard axles, which is essentially SARS-4. So SARS are, are no longer a part of the design process. For cemented materials, I said earlier, we, we had modified the definition of modified materials, in addition to which in 2017, we introduced a new concept called lightly bound materials, which are materials that have a 28 day unconfined compressive strength of between one and two megapascals. Um, the other change that we made in 2017 uh, for flexible pavements was to consider lean mixed concrete as a separate material type itself, rather than just an instance of a cemented material. For heavily bound um, cemented materials, uh, we came up with a new elastic characterization. Both the in situ, uh, we transferred the modulus to the in situ modulus after 90 days curing, which I'll describe in a minute, and we came up with a new fatigue performance relationship. For asphalt, we added two new means of determining flexural modulus based on four point bending tests. Uh, we revised the performance relationship, it's still based centrally around the old shell relationship, but we separated the reliability factor into two components. And we placed a limit on design traffic for assessment of asphalt fatigue, um, recognising that once you get above a certain uh, traffic level, your pavement really doesn't need extra thickness. Um, the, the pavement life, you don't get additional life for additional thickness. Um, in design traffic as well, we introduced a limit on um, the design traffic based on the lane capacity concept. Um, I won't go into this in much more detail today, but in essence, we recognise that once a lane is completely occupied, you can't have more vehicles in it. So the geometric growth, which we usually do in design traffic, where you have a growth function that increases traffic every year, we realise that once you've reached the capacity of the lane, there is no more room for that growth to go. So you may as well stop accumulating it. And we revised the way in motion data um, in the back of the guide, adding in New Zealand sections as well. We also added in some traffic distributions for likely traffic roads um, as well. The, the biggest change, as I said earlier, was in the mechanistic empirical design process where we came up with the axle strain concept where we are modeling um, the responses under each individual axle group type. So single axle, tandem axle, tries, quads, um, and load levels. So the load level and the axle group type distribution that you'd get from a way in motion site is used in the design process um, to determine the performance of the bound materials, the asphalt and cemented materials. And we've got some simplification processes which we've described in the technical basis document that mean from a, a response to load modeling point of view, we just need to model two axle um, scenarios, a, a standard axle and a single axle with single tires at a specific load level. And we can reconstitute um, strains under all the other axle group types in the distribution from those two base ingredients using assumptions that are that are listed in um, the technical basis document. The underlying research and development for coming up with that method came from three different places, uh, one for each of the three different um, uh, material failure modes or design failure modes that we consider in the mechanistic empirical design process. For asphalt fatigue, we used a DASA set that was collected by uh, Dr. Farah Homsi in France at the University of Burgundy in conjunction um, with IFSTAR. Uh, so uh, Dr. Homsi's data there was invaluable um, in coming up with uh, the conclusions that we did. Ostrode's funded a study uh, that we conducted looking at cemented material fatigue. And in both of those two tests, we were using laboratory tests to simulate multiple axle loadings on asphalt beam, well, asphalt trapezoidal prisms um, and cemented material beams um, under repeated um, fatigue environments. And for the deformation of crushed rock, um, we used a study using um, ARB's accelerated loading facility as well in a separate exercise. So all three of those combined, um, we used to develop this report, which by itself is, I think, just short of 300 pages long, um, detailing uh, all of the underlying works. In essence, what we found was that the general form of an asphalt fatigue relationship considering multiple axle groups was really that the number of cycles to fatigue was directly proportional um, to um, our 
fatigue constant K divided by our tensile strain raised to the fifth power, the classic fatigue relationship, but also divided by the number of axles in the axle group. We came up with a very similar relationship for cemented materials. Again, the fatigue constant to the 12th power, but dividing the whole total group by the number of axles in that group. So we came up with a generic fatigue performance um, relationship for bound materials, which is that the number of cycles um, to fatigue of a particular axle group and load level is equal to the reliability function, which we'll talk about in detail, divided by the number of actual axles in the group. Um, and with a fatigue constant, the strain developed by the group all loaded to a strain um, damage exponent. For the deformation of crushed rock, um, the trial um, suggested it, uh, the results weren't precise enough to have 100% confidence, but they suggested that the interac interaction between axles in a group did not affect deformation. Um, they also suggested that axles in the group contributed to overall damage in complete isolation to each other. So the grouping of axles, um, at least at the ALF speeds, did not um, three passes of an axle with the same load on it, on all three axles, and um, was you know three times as more damaging as a single pass of one of those axles with the same single axle load on it. Um, so those results uh, supported the continued use of, um, for example, our 181 kilonewton triaxial load causing the same damage as an 80 kilonewton standard axle load. And as a result of which in the strain damage model, we didn't come up with a new strain formula like we did for asphalt and cemented materials, we retain the old concept, but with the subtle change of removing SAR-7 and going to ESAs in the, uh, in the, with the goal of simplicity. Um, so the calculation of allowable repetitions to fatigue, as I said earlier, you take your traffic distribution, you determine the critical strain under each of the um, axles within the group. You know the number of axles in the group. You can then calculate using those damage equations. And I've shown the asphalt one here, for example, um, the allowable repetitions of that load level and that load type. You can divide that by the number that you have got in the distribution, and you can then come up with a damage function. Um, prior to 2012, the, the permanent deformation model that we used, the equation to the far right, number of standard axle repetitions, stars, SARS-7, is equal to 9,300 divided by microstrain to the seven. That, and here's letting you in underneath the hood a bit and showing why it really is mechanistic empirical. That is not an equation that was derived from the result of laboratory um, trials. It is simply a regression equation determined from using the old figure 8.4, still figure 8.4, the empirical chart we use for the design of unbound granular pavements with thin bituminous surfacings. The way it was derived was to conceive um, a, a, a range of granular thickness and subgrade uh, strength conditions, sub, subgrade California bearing ratios. We then used the um, circle to model those structures to determine the maximum compressive strain on the top of the subgrade. Independently, we used figure 8.4 to determine um, the design ESAs. Then assuming a distribution, we could come up with a, the number of ESAs per SARS-7, combining that calculation with the subgrade strain and doing a regression gave us N equals 9,300 divided by microstrain to the seventh power. So that's how it was done up to and including 2012. In 2017, rather than retain this assumed SARS-7 divided by ESA, we simply remove that and go straight to design ESAs and recalculated that regression equation. So it's directly in terms of number of ESAs um, is the design traffic. So we've taken out an assumption and gone back to the purer form of that chart. Whilst we're at it, looking at, at permanent deformation, the other subtle change that was made in 2017, if you look at the title of the y-axis, you'll see we have removed the term granular. That axis now represents the thickness of material and those materials can be crushed rocks natural gravels, selected subgrades, they always could be, but um, the introduction in 2017 was lime stabilised subgrades as well. So you can now use figure 8.4 for um, considering lime stabilised subgrades as part of the pavement structure. Um, 
And we have also provided rules for that in the mechanistic empirical method. And in both of those cases, mechanistic empirical and um, the pure empirical, we're treating that lime stabilized subgrade as a quality uh, selected subgrade material. Um, I said earlier that we introduced two new measures for um, determine determining design asphalt modulus. Uh, the previous uh, two, direct measurement using indirect tensile test and estimation from shell nomographs are retained. But the two new methods are direct measurement, where wherein we're measuring flexural modulus on laboratory prepared um, asphalt specimens and putting those in a four point uh, bending rig and determining the, the flexural performance um, of those materials. That's So in method one, you would know for the design, the in-service uh, speed that you are representing. You can convert that into a loading frequency in terms of the, the fatigue test. And you know your in-service weighted mean annual pavement temperature. You can conduct the asphalt fatigue test at the appropriate frequency that matches the speed and at the WMAPT, the, the pavement temperature. The second method um, involves a lot more testing um, where you conduct a range of tests at different frequencies and temperatures, um, and as a result of which form what we call the, the master curve, which is a single equation that allows you to interpolate along that equation at any temperature or any speed um, that was within, was within the data set that was used um, to form the equation. Now it's a lot more testing, and you might wonder why you would do more testing than method one? And the answer is, uh, if you're going to be reusing the asphalt mixes in a whole series of designs, you go through that suite of testing once and you can now cover an infinite range of designs within the boundaries, um, rather than have to go back and conduct a specific test again at the specific test speed and temperature as in method one. So the choice is there, as well as uh, indirect tensile and, and shell nomographs, as I said. The other change we made in asphalt fatigue um, was to take the reliability factor um, that existed prior to 2017 and unpack the two components that it, it always had within it. And those components were a shift factor between the mean laboratory um, fatigue life and the mean in-service life. So you plot your, your results from the lab and you put a mean relationship through the guts of the data, not a percentile relationship. So that there was the component of the reliability factor, which was that lab to field shift factor of mean life. And then on top of that was the true reliability factor, um, allowing you to shift the mean in-service life to an in-service life at a desired level of uh, design reliability, like the 95, 97.5% that you see in classic heavy duty um, pavement design. In 2017, um, in the aim of um, trying to help clarify things, we split that down into the two components, uh, a shift factor for that mean um, to in-service uh, fatigue life. We used a, a presumptive value of six, which um, we determined was appropriate for the shell relationship, um, and a reliability factor for just that translation of a mean relationship to a specific reliability level. For cemented materials in design, um, prior to 2017, which means up to 2012, the, um, design the design modulus was an estimate of the in-situ flexural modulus after 28 days curing in the row bed. And the most traditional way of determining um, that um, modulus was estimating it using a relationship um, based on unconfined compressive strength values, or simply just using a presumptive values that we listed in the guide and some of the other road agencies listed in their design supplements. And then the fatigue of, uh, performance equation was essentially a function of the reliability factor um, that, that estimate of the in-situ flexural modulus, E in the equation, and the tensile strain. In 2017, recognising uh, that slower setting binders are, are more commonly used uh, nowadays, and they set up over a much longer period of time than 28 days. We changed the design uh, modulus to an estimate of the in-situ flexural design modulus after 90 days curing in the road bed. And instead of using um, the 2012 and previous uh, performance relationship for fatigue, um, we came up with a generalized performance relationship, which is number of cycles to fatigue is a reliability factor, multiply, uh, 
multiply by the guts of the thing, the, the fatigue constant divided by the strain, tensile strain at the bottom of your um, cemented material raised to the 12th power. And we developed uh, three different means of deriving that K, all of which have different degrees of laboratory to field shift factors built into them, which is why it's not out the front of the equation, but um, embedded in the K. The first one was direct laboratory measurement. Um, of the fatigue performance, similar to that's what we described um, for asphalt. The addition being that we use slightly larger equipment because the particle sizes that we have in these cemented materials makes the small asphalt beams a little impractical. So direct laboratory performance measurement of the material, oral fatigue performance. Or secondly, if you don't want to go to the effort of fatigue testing at different strain levels, we came up with a method for determining or estimating that K value based on laboratory measured flexural modulus and flexural strength data. And that's the key differentiator um, between the new generalized uh, model form and the one used from 2012 before. That we found that the flexural strength of the material was a key factor in the fatigue performance. And if you see the first equation listed on that slide does not mention flexural fatigue at all, uh, flexural strength at all. Um, the third method for coming up with uh, K was uh, just using a presumptive flexural modulus and strength. And in that method, we don't provide reliability factors because you're in unknown territory. So that's cemented materials. Lean mixed concrete, as I said, we split out as a separate material. Prior to 2017, uh, lean mix was considered in conjunction with other cemented materials when we were considering flexible uh, pavements. Um, in 2017, we've pulled it out as its own separate type um, that uses a different uh, um, uses a different characterization process to cemented materials. Same sort of relationship form, but different means of determining K. And at this stage, um, our K factors, fatigue constant K factors for the fatigue relationship are purely presumptive design moduli, and we've listed presumptive design moduli for lean mix. Uh, rolled concrete and lean mixed screeded concrete. And both of those parameters are those values used by Transport for New South Wales who are the predominant user of lean mixed concrete subbases for heavy duty flexible pavements. And with that, uh, my go is done. I'll hand over to Jeff Jamison, but I'd ask you to um, send in questions, make use of that chat box, make use of the time having Jeff and I available to, to answer your questions. and. Uh, I would like to hand over to Jeff now. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, very much. Right. <clears throat> so what I'm going to discuss is now the technical basis of part five, and that's the design guide for pavement evaluation and treatment design. Now, the I'll be discussing the changes between the 2011 uh, edition of part five and the 2019 edition. And the, mainly the changes related to the structural design of rehabilitation treatment. So it's that, that element that I'll be largely concentrating on in the presentation. And the before, I've picked out four areas, uh, four topics uh, that'll, that I'll talk to. One is the method of calculating the characteristic uh, maximum deflection. And the next one is the back calculation of layer moduli, how we've provided improved guidance about that. Uh, the maximum uh, design moduli, we've now uh, included some guidance about the maximum subgrade design moduli to use in designing rehab treatments. And lastly, I'll mention uh, some aspects of assigning design moduli to existing asphalt layers. Now, often in, uh, in pavement evaluation, we undertake pavement uh, surface deflection testing uh, to help us assess the structural adequacy of the existing pavement, pavements and, and therefore whether they need strengthening or not. And shown on the graph there is some example of some deflections along a section of road. And because of the variability, we often divide those, uh, those deflections into a number of homogeneous subsections. And within the subsections, there's a need to define or identify 
a sort of characteristic value that represents the weakest areas of the pavement that will limit pavement life. And, that, and that's what we call the characteristic deflection. It's that value that characterises the strength in a homogeneous subsection. And shown on the slide here is the formula that we use. It's the characteristic deflection is the mean plus a constant times the standard deviation. And the constant is such that it represents towards the maximum deflections in the, in the um, homogeneous section. For example, for a freeway, we use a constant of two times the standard deviation, therefore not about 97.5% of the deflections are below the characteristic uh, deflection level and only about 2.5% of values are above um, the uh, characteristic deflection level. So uh, we saw there were two principal reasons uh, that drove some changes to this process. The first reason was really related to the footnote in the table there, where you'll see that those F values, those constants, are only applicable where you've got 30 or more deflections, measurements in a homogeneous section. And there are often situations that you have less than 30, uh, 30 measurements in a section. For example, if there's 200 uh, metre long homogeneous section, and you're measuring deflections at 10 metre intervals, we would only have 20 results in that section. And there's no guidance about how you calculate a characteristic uh, deflection in that case. So there was a need to provide uh, an improvement in that sense to cater for less than 30 um, deflections in a homogeneous section. The other issue related to the percentile values that these F values relate to. As, as, I, as I mentioned previously, for freeways, for example, 2.5% um, of the length or the area would be above the characteristic value. For arterial roads, 5% and 10% for uh, other roads. And Turning back to the freeways, for example, 2.5% of the length for a 200 metre long section results in a what, five metre long section that where uh, it's influencing the treatments on, the, on that road. And the view was that there was a bit of a disconnect here between uh, some of these percentiles and what was deemed to be the time at which pavements would be rehabilitated. Do we really rehabilitate roads when your freeways when five metres out of 200 metre long section needs to be patched? So the view was that the characteristic uh, deflection should align in a much better way with a percentage of the length of, uh, of a homogeneous section that's in a condition that is uh, deemed to be requiring rehabilitation, not just patching, for example. And to really improve this process and to get this better alignment, uh, Ostroads uh, would need to define these end of life conditions, these structural conditions at the end of life. What percentage, and what what uh, you know, what amount of distress, the severity and the extent of distress at the time uh, of the end of life, and these values haven't yet been defined by Ostroads. So we sought uh, some guidance from other practices um, and we were aware that the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads used a 90th percentile, in other words, the weakest 10 percentile values in their FVUs uh, when they're assessing uh, the characteristic deflection of a section. So they were using a, a 10 percentile, uh, the 10, weakest 10 percent of, of the pavement. The other aspect that came into our consideration is that in part two, where we're designing new pavements using uh, you know, field uh, determined CBR values, say with a dynamic cone penetrometer, the 10 percentile value is commonly adopted. So those, considering those two current practices, we recommended and changed the guide so that the characteristic uh, deflection reflects the weakest 10 percent of a, a homogeneous section. And you can see in the table here, we've also provided uh, F values down to, a, to 10 
uh, deflection measurements uh, in a homogeneous section. Now, when we're doing a, a, a rehabilitation evaluation, uh, we often have um, pavement deflection data available. We've measured the surface deflections. And if we know the pavement layer thicknesses, we can back calculate the layer modulo of the existing pavement layers and also the subgrade and use that in determining the strengthening requirements of the pavement. And just a reminder of what we're talking about when we talk about back calculation, it's an iterative process where we're selecting the pavement layer moduli or searching for them such that a predicted deflection bowl agrees with the, the measured bowl that we have. So we keep iterating around trying different combinations of moduli until there's a good match between the measured bowl and the predicted bowl using linear elastic theory. And that can either be done manually, but it also is done through back calculation software. So uh, what were the improvements uh, sought in the, in, to provide more guidance about back calculation? Uh, the prime driver of this is we were getting various practices by various designers. We wanted to improve consistency in the outcomes of different designers doing back calculation. And so that was the driver of most of the changes. Now, in terms of particulars, uh, first off, we gave some better guidance about which deflection bowls in a homogeneous section should be used to derive uh, the design modulus for the rehabilitation design. And you know what we said was that the design, uh, the deflection bowls near the des uh, characteristic deflection are those most suitable to determine uh, the design moduli. They represent the, the, the weaker areas of the pavement that will limit pavement life. The next, uh, we provided more guidance about how to sublayer a subgrade. So instead of considering one homogeneous uh, semi-infinite layer as we do in the design of new pavements, for back calculation, we show the benefits of sublayering that into two or three layers. So in the case of a, where three layers is used, it would comprise the top 300 millimetre thickness of subgrade, then the next 500 millimetre thickness, and then a semi-infinite layer underneath that. And in the next slide, I'll show you the significance of sublayering the subgrade. Another, another uh, improved aspect of guidance is uh, how you seed the back calculation program. So when we start an iteration of the modulus, it, the start values we use or the seed values are very influential in terms of where the where we end up in terms of the back calculator moduli. And that particularly relates to the seed values or the initial values we start the iteration with for subgrade. And we've found this, the composite modulus as shown in this formula here, is very useful uh, means of seeding the back calculation of the subgrade layers. Now I talked about these, uh, the significance of subgrade sublayering. And in the report, we give this uh, a sort of case study of where we've got a, 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 an asphalt on granular pavement. So the asphalt's 110 millimetres thick. We've got two granular layers and then the subgrade underneath, uh, underneath the granular layers. In the first column there, you'll see the where we did a back calculation with a semi-infinite subgrade, we ended up with a very low sub-base modulus of 43 and a very high subgrade modulus of 139. Whereas when we included uh, uh, two layers of subgrade, an upper 300 millimetre thick, thickness of, of subgrade on the semi-infinite layer, the subbase, uh, granular subbase modulus increased to a more reasonable value, and the subgrade uh, modulus uh, decreased down to 43. And further improvements were possible with a three-layer subgrade system. 
so, and you can also see from the bowl fitting areas on the bottom of the table that the the agreement between the measured bowl and the predicted bowls was much better as soon as we included two subgrade layers rather than rather than a single subgrade layer. So some other aspects of uh, improved guidance in terms of back calculation related to um, this issue of uh, anisotropic characterization of uh, granular layers and subgrade. Now in part two and part five of the guide, in terms of the elastic characterization, we assume the vertical modulus is twice the horizontal modulus. And so we can do for the, in the design of new pavements, we can, we have Circly software, we have OSPAD software that you enables the anisotropic characterization of these materials. However, the commercially available software is limited to isotropic characterization. So there was a need really to provide a process of um, adjusting those isotropic moduli for granular layers and subgrade that you might back calculate with these commercial packages to equivalent anisotropic values. And what we've come up with is you if you multiply the isotropic modulus by 1.1, in other words, increase it by 10%, it provides a reasonable estimate of the vertical modulus of those materials. And we came up with that factor by doing mechanistic modelling, predicting bowl shapes with different combinations of isotropic and anisotropic characterization. Now another area that we've needed to provide guidance on was the maximum subgrade design modulo that should be used in rehabilitation design. For the situation where we don't have laboratory CVR tests and we're relying, for example, on back calculator moduli and we don't have lab CBR results available. And this table here is now provided in part five, giving the maximum values to use uh, regardless of what values might have been back calculated. And the reason why we provided this guidance is that we've found that back calculated moduli tend to be higher than the values we get from a CBR test multiplied by 10, our common means of estimating subgrade modulus that forms the basis of our whole design system in part two. Our design uh, performance relationships are all based on this method of characterising subgrade, 10 times the CBR. And so when we're using back, when we're doing um, rehabilitation design with the mechanistic procedure, uh, th that system is based on the performance relationships used in part two of the guide for the design of new pavements. So we need to be using moduli that's consistent with those used in part two of the guide. And so shown on this graph here, is, for example, is some results that we measured on one of our research projects where we had uh, DCP, dynamic cone penetrometer results, on the, on the top of the subgrade and multiplied those estimated CBRs from the DCP to estimate the subgrade modulus versus back calculated modulus for that top of the subgrade. And you can see, for example, where we measured a, a CBR of seven, came up with a vertical modulus of 70 MPA from the DCP test. The uh, back calculator moduli were 150 MPA or more. So quite a difference between those two methods of estimating moduli and the back calculated moduli tend to be higher. So that's the reason why we needed, we needed a method of limiting uh, the back calculated moduli for use in our design system. And so what we came up with was uh, a process where the maximum values were twice the values that, are, that would be estimated uh, from uh, the presumptive CBR values in part two of the guide. So the top table there is 
presumptive subgrade CBR values that are used in part two, where you don't have laboratory CBR test results. So for a highly plastic clay, for example, with excellent drainage or good drainage, there's a presumptive CBR of five. So the vertical modulus in that vertical design modulus, presumptive value would be 10 times that, 50 MPA. So what in the lower table, then you can see the, the maximum value we should be using in the design of rehabilitation treatments is twice that value, twice 50, which is that 100 MPA. So we're up to a maximum of 150 MPA. So we've, we've tried to adjust or limit the back calculator moduli so that they're more consistent with our whole design system. Another aspect that we uh, uh, addressed and provided additional guidance on was the moduli assigned to existing asphalt layers. Now, the modulus and thickness of the existing asphalt can have a, a marked effect on the on a calculated overlay thicknesses. So it's a very important factor in influencing uh, asphalt overlay designs. So when we select uh, uh, the design moduli for these existing asphalt layers, we need to consider um, these various factors. For example, the maximum modulus that you would normally assign in the, in the design of new pavements. We need to consider whether or not, what, what's the current condition? Is it currently cracked? We know that from coring or visual inspection. If you've got some results of taking cores from the pavement and testing them for modulus, uh, that would be considered those would be considered, and also any back-calculated modulus results that you have uh, for the asphalt layer. You also need to consider um, not only that current asphalt modulus, as we've talked about, that you might be obtained from coring or from back-calculated values, but how that current modulus might change during the treatment design period, say over the next 20 years, There'll be additional uh, traffic-induced strains in the asphalt, which will produce, can, may produce further damage. So if, the, if we have evidence that the existing asphalt layer is fatigue, has fatigue cracked due to the past traffic, we are, we've provided a procedure here to allow for the likelihood that the damage will continue during the treatment design period. And therefore, we've provided a process to reduce the modulus uh, in light of that anticipated future damage. And this, this is the, um, the design chart we've, we've adopted. It provides a modulus reduction factor to allow for the future damage to the, ash, the existing asphalt layers. So you would apply this adjustment to any um, core moduli that you might have measured in the lab or back calculator moduli. And it depends on the, the factor depends on the ratio of the design traffic during the treatment period to the past traffic that's been applied to that existing asphalt layer. And the report explains uh, the origins of, of that uh, design, uh, the modulus reduction factor we used back calculated results that we uh, had uh, measured under accelerated loading, showing how the uh, modulus of asphalt reduces as it progresses to different amounts of cracking. Um, in the 2011 guide, we provided this design chart about a presumptive um, design modulus for cracked asphalt. And that chart has been retained uh, for the 2019 guide. And it's particularly useful when we don't have um, core data or back calculator moduli, but we can see on the surface, for example, that the pavement is already fatigue cracked. So these are presumptive moduli in the fatigue cracked state. And they really represent modulus of fairly significantly cracked asphalt. And, and we obtained this chart by back calculating the modulus of um, different test pavements 
and you can see some results in the slide there of us how the modulus of sound asphalt changes with temperature that we've calculated versus how the modulus of a cracked asphalt like this crocodile cracked asphalt changes with temperature. So we use that information to come up with these presumptive moduli for uh, asphalt in the cracked state. So that completes uh, my summary. I've gone through the new method of calculating the characteristic deflection, improved guidance we've given on terms of back calculation of layer moduli from surface deflections. I've mentioned about how we've, we needed to provide maximum subgrade design moduli, particularly in the case where we're using back calculator moduli and also some improved guidance about how you might establish a design modulus from existing, uh, of the existing asphalt layers. So thank you, and I'll now pass it back to Katarina for some questions. Thank you, Jeff. I am now showing my screen. Um, thanks so much, and Michael, if you could join us as well. Thank you. Um, we have quite a few questions, um, so we will attempt to answer as many of them as we can as we go. Uh, and if we don't answer your question today, uh, we will do it in writing and email you the um, response after the webinar. So I will start with this one, doesn't have any particular slide number. Um, so why the old modulus distribution of granular material is still retained and not adjusted to the Usens model? Uh, the modulus should not decrease uh, with the depth for the whole thickness of the base. Uh, that's part two, Michael. Yes. <laughs> oh, you might. Wow. <laughs> let let let's respond to that one in writing. That's quite a complex okay. thing in the available okay. time. We can <laughs> do that. I'm making a note. Yeah. Yep. Right. Uh, just to be just to be clear, we we are using Uzan's model for for um, transferring RLT results. Okay. Um, great. Thank you. So next one. Um, how has how have the asphalt mix specific in service fatigue shift uh, shift factors been determined and how reliable is a SF of six? An SF of six is fifty percent reliable. <laughs> it's a it's it's the lab to field. It's the mean relationship. So we would then use a reliability factor on top of the six to adjust to different levels of reliability. So it's 50%. Um, the Austroads guide does not have any uh, specific instructions regarding mix specific fatigue relationships. Um, it does state that if you wish to use a mix specific relationship, then you'll need to have uh, an understanding of the lab to field shift factor. It doesn't say that the factor of six still applies in that case, but I know that some state road agencies are um, going down that path and assuming that the six applies equally well to mix specific fatigue relationships. I, I, can I just add that the factor of six relates to the shell laboratory fatigue relationship and a different value might relate to the Australian method of measuring uh, laboratory fatigue. And I think Austroads have some interest in doing some further research to establish what the difference is between the shell laboratory fatigue relationship and fatigue relationships that we're generally using and measuring in Australia today with our test methods. So there is a difference. That factor of six only relates to the shell laboratory fatigue relationship. It doesn't relate to necessarily relate to our fatigue test that we're using today in Australia. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Jeff. Um, all right, next question. So how are um, homogenous pavement sections identified for rehabilitation? Is uh, a dynamic segmentation approach practiced in Australia? Uh, there, are, there are two methods that we refer to in the section uh, that talks about homogeneous sections. Um, and one of those does reference uh, the Ashito procedure that's used which is, uh, and so I think if you go to the um, 
part five of the guide, you'll see there's discussion there about two methods of identifying homogeneous section. One is in terms of the standard deviation divided by the mean. In other words, the coefficient of variation limited to 25%, but also that ASHITO process um, is referenced. So there are two processes referenced in, in uh, part five. Thank you. Um, next question. Do we have any guidance for a minimum number of test point frequency for deflection testing? A minimum number of of uh, test test point frequency for test deflection frequency. testing. Uh, no, there's no guidance in terms of the minimum number, and of course that that the number will vary how you divide up that homogeneous section. But obviously, uh, the more the better. <laughs> but where there's no guidance about the minimum number uh, that we have, no. Okay. Um, so here's the question for Michael. Um, so the last couple of slides uh, on characterization of cemented materials, uh, there is a lot of push from designers to use NFC as a sub-base in areas prone to flooding and also under rigid pavements. So could Austroads make some recommendations uh, to the use of NFC as sub-base um, and its characterization? modulus in design? Um, it could, it wasn't the scope of the, the project we're talking about today, and it hasn't been the, the scope of any other development, but we can take note of that and mm -hmm. throw it in the mix of um, concepts needing further exploration. Thanks. Uh, here's another question for you. So uh, let me just uh, open it so I can read it. So cemented material modulus is now based on 90 day in place of 28 day. 90 day modulus will be higher than 28 uh, day modulus. Have the typical modulus and uh, range of modulus values revised in um, AGPT 0217 table 6.7 based on 90 day modulus? Writing? <laughs> no, I'm thinking yeah, probably writing because I can't recall. It's quite yeah. possible they haven't, but then again, they are very wide ranges of values representing um, considerable amount of variation depending on host material and binder contents. Um, so it's quite possible that they haven't changed, um, but what they're yeah, doing to be representative of has. Okay, we will leave it uh, for the written response. Um, yeah. Another question, so uh, can the asphalt layer uh, be also divided into sub-layers, um, upper, lower binder, course, and wearing course with different modular values in the back calculation analysis? Um, one of the limitations of uh, doing back calculation is that uh, the spacing of the deflection points that where we measure the deflection. So, Typically, we measure at uh, zero, the middle of the deflection plate, if we're talking about FWD, and 200 millimetres away is the, um, the next offset at which deflections are measured. And because of the spacing, that uh, spacing of the deflection measurements, we are limited in our ability to separate, provide separate uh, modulus values for thin layers. So, Typically, if the asphalt is less than, say, about 75 millimetres, we wouldn't recommend you back, try to back calculate uh, the layer th modulus for such a thin layer. And it typically is very difficult to separate out the asphalt layers unless it's a very thick asphalt pavement, like, say, 300 millimetre thick, then you might, you might want to attempt to divide it into two layers, for example. But the, the upshot is there's not a lot of information in the measured deflection bowl that enables us to sublayer the asphalt into those individual layers and estimate a modulus for it, each of the individual layers. And another factor in there is quite often the asphalt moduli between those different mix types are fairly similar, at least in, in the context of the variability you get in back calculated results. So 
Um, mm. Even if you were talking about a very fixed structure, you may struggle to have the back calculation determine a meaningful moduli difference unless they were markedly mm. different to each other. Thanks, uh, Michael and Jeff. Uh, we have one minute left, so we're just going to take uh, one last question. Uh, we do have more left, so as I said, we will reply to them in writing. So the question is, in rehabilitation, how do you allow in-field in evaluations for cracking in the surface in asphalt? As this phenomenon appears to give increased deflection readings, not accurately reflecting base cores, strength, and etc. Um, not quite. Uh, maybe I need to look at that question and reflect on it. We, the, the way we look at cracking is that we do, of course, a visual inspection during the, um, as part of the evaluation and record the amount of cracking. And you might also, you know, take cores in the existing asphalt or other cemented layer and work out the depth of cracking and what the significance of that surface cracking, whether it um, increases with cracking with depth. So perhaps I can address it more fully when I reflect on afterwards and answer, answer it in writing that, that mm -hmm. question. Yeah, definitely, not a problem at all. Um, okay, um, we ran out of time, it's 2 p.m. Uh, thanks Jeff and Michael for a great presentation and very interesting Q&A. Um, just before we wrap up, as usual, I will say a few words about our next sessions. We have uh, three sessions left in August. Uh, on the 10th uh, of August, we will share some information that will assist local government practitioners in the use and procurement of uh, road surfacing products with recycled waste plastics. And at the end of August, we will have two sessions uh, to present an overview of an updated guide to road safety. So please visit our uh, website for more information and uh, to register. And as usual, uh, once we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes, uh, send us your feedback. It helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and uh, what suggestions you have for our future webinars. Once again, the uh, session today is being recorded and we will send you a link to the recording when it's published on our website. Um, thanks again, everyone. Uh, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day. We will see you next time.